The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Invite your attention to Jonah chapter 4 today, Jonah chapter 4. Before we get there, before we start the official thing, I suppose, uh, I just want to again thank Mark Hinkle for leading us in worship. Uh, next week, Blake Loy, who we voted in a few weeks ago as our, our worship leader, will be here. Mark, thank you for leading. Uh, you would never know it, but Mark had a cold today. Uh, it didn't sound like a cold to me. It sounded pretty good. So, Mark, thank you for leading with a strong voice each Sunday, and we're grateful for your service, grateful to service to the Lord. Second thing, I'll, yeah, you can give him a round of applause. Please do. I joked with Mark a, lot, a couple weeks ago, him and Blake are two big guys. I don't know who my money would be on if I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I, they're both, it would be a match to see. You'll just have to wait and see that. Uh, second thing I'll say is this, is uh, many of you have asked, uh, what's our next sermon series going to be? And we've kind of been flipping Old Testament and New Testament. And to finish up October, we will go to the book of 2 John next week, 2 John. And then in the book, uh, month of November, we're going to focus on what does it mean for us to be a gospel-centered church. We've talked about a lot about it through books, but what does it look like practically for us to do that? So, but today we finish Jonah, that rebellious prophet. Oh boy, here we go. Uh, and we, it's going to be a lot of fun. So let's jump into it. Now, many of you know who this player is. It's going to be up on the screen here in just a second. This is, of course, Tim Tebow. Now, if you're not a football fan, you may know many things about Tim Tebow. Some are true, some aren't. But one thing that is very true about Tim Tebow is in the 2009 National Championship game, college national football game, he put that black stuff they put on, uh, football players do on, but he also put a verse, John 3.16. That's his favorite verse, and I think most of you all would know, if you know anything about the Bible, you probably know one verse, John 3.16. Can you say it with me? You know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I just mixed like three translations in the one, and so did you, but it's okay. Over 92 million searches were done six years ago in January 2009 when Tim Tebow put this across his face. Many people do not know what John 3.16 means. Literally, just do not know what it means across the board. And so one thing we can say is this is arguably the biggest verse ever. And I'll go ahead and have uh, Adam or, or Amy throw this up there so you can see it. 25 words is all this is. 25 words that God loves us. And that lost people, people without Christ, really matter to God. Friends, our God is a God with the lost world on his mind. He's a God with a missionary heart. Aren't you grateful for that? Because you have had the saving grace of that if you're a Christian. God is in hot pursuit of lost men, lost girls, lost boys, lost whatever. And there's not one single person in this world that is beyond the reach of his love, his grace, and his concern. Wow, what an amazing God he is. But unfortunately, we don't always look at it that way, do we? We often come to it and we say that we look down on people and, well, well, God can't save that person, can he? God can't do that person, can he? And sometimes, if we're honest, and we should be honest, we 
become self-righteous. And we think some people are too bad, too evil, too wicked, and too, quite frankly, undeserving, we might even say in our hearts, of God's amazing grace. Maybe you've never done that. Even your pastor has done that. And the thought of a murderer, a rapist, a drug dealer, a prostitute, those who traffic children, the, the homosexual, the dope addict, these and others just like them, we might say, are getting away from God's justice because they deserve that. And the, the, the joy of praying for them that should be ours is robbed by the fact that we just want to see it all taken out and taken away. Jonah 4 confronts us, friends, today with a very real truth. We, John 3.16, absolutely. But the incredible truth and haunting question is this. Do lost people matter to me? Do lost people matter to our church? Or do we ignore them and long for their judgment as we will see Jonah long for the judgment of the people of Nineveh? Even after all the crazy stuff we've gone over the last three weeks he's gone through, he still is that way. What's the big idea today? If you're new here, the big idea is just kind of an encapsulation, a practical encapsulation of where the text is headed or mainly where it's headed. And I think it's this, this week. If your heart doesn't ache for people who don't know Christ, you may not know Christ yourself. Yikes. See, Darren, where'd you get that? Actually, Charles Spurgeon said it this way in a more 1800s way. He said, sir, if you have no desire for others to be saved yourself, then sir, be aware of this. You are not saved. I didn't put that up there. I kind of 21st century, but friends, we meet people where they are, not where we are, and not on the basis of where we want them to be. Speak truth and people will hear you. Love them and they will hear you when they tell the truth. Look, this is not just a pass to let people sin. This is not just a pass just to say, oh, the pastor said, I, you just go do each his own. No. What we are saying, though, is this. Christian, is your heart such that you pray for lost people? When you see Justin Bieber, is that name still popular anymore? Justin Bieber one of the, or whatever Hollywood stars going through whatever crazy thing, have you prayed for them? that they may know Jesus Christ. Because lost people, even the Justin Biebers of the world, need to know Christ. Amen? Three points today. The unsaved really matter to God. Three things we'll see from Jonah 4. Don't forget who God is in this process. Don't forget why you're here in this process. And don't forget what really matters. Jonah's going to show us all those things. Chapter 1, we saw Jonah running away from the Lord. Chapter 2, we saw Jonah running to the Lord. He was in a fish or a big something there. Chapter 3, he's running with the Lord. Remember, he goes and he preaches last week to Nineveh, and they repent. And now chapter 4, Jonah finds a spot on a hill, so to speak, and he waits for Nineveh to be destroyed. And Jonah now is running against the Lord. And Jonah is forced, like I hope you are, like I had to this week, to look at yourself and say, Am I more concerned with my comfort, our church's comfort? We've always done it this way. Or are we more concerned with the souls of people who may not be in this church right now? Jonah learns, as we must, that God's love, like John 3.16 says, has no limits. And aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that God's love had no limit to save you if you were a Christian here today? And friends, we need to understand that although they may turn, people may turn to run from and rebel against God's purpose and plan for them, God will not give them up. There is a place, and Matt, we talked about this on Wednesday night in this room over here on Awana. One of the youth asked a question, 
when can a person come to know Christ? And Matt brought up a great example. That thief on the cross, literally, within the last hour, two hours, maybe less, gave his life to Christ. May our hearts be broken today as we read through a heartbreaking tale of God's man who has, once again, the wrong perspective on what it means for God's love to be shown to people he doesn't necessarily like. Will you join me in standing this morning, if you're able, as we read God's word? Standing is just a way to show respect for God's word. If you are not able to stand, please do not feel guilty about that. We understand that is okay. John, Jonah chapter 4. Be reading out of the English Standard Version, the whole chapter, 11 verses. God's word says this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country or my home? That is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to do, be angry? Jonah, verse 5, went out of the city, that's Nineveh, and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly happy because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Verse 9, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came in being in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Sure, you and God have never had a conversation like this, perhaps. Maybe not this intense, but I bet you've argued with the Lord at some point. Let's look at this argument between God and Jonah, and let's see where it takes us today. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, the, the last three weeks, now the fourth and final week of Jonah. Father, it is a very honest book before us. It teaches us many things about your grace, your sovereignty, missions, about your, your, your missionary heart to the peoples, the nations, even people who live right next to us who don't know you. But Father, I pray today that you would also, by your spirit, examine our hearts before your word. Examine my heart, as, as I know you've already done this week, to really consider, do lost people matter to me? Does lost people, do lost people matter to our church? Lord, we know they do, but Father, may it not just be a thing we do, but may it be an overriding passion for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom, for the praise of your name, to continue boldly, but with great love that is found in your name to reach those without Christ. Father, give us great wisdom. We love you. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you were here last week, you know that God's anger, his judgment was cooled 
by their repentance before God. And, and God's hand was stayed last week by the repenting from the king all the way down to the, the animals. We, we, we know that. And you would think, wouldn't you, the irony again, this book is all about ironic statements. You would think, wouldn't you, that Jonah would be happy, that the message he preached, the God who saved him, has now saved a wicked city. But he's not. Jonah's mad. He's a reluctant missionary, and he's anything but pleased. And although he learned to obey God's commands, he had not learned one simple lesson that you learn in the toddler room. That is to love others. So I'm going to show you seven quick sub-points, guys, that we are not to forget. Don't forget who God is from verses 1 to 4. The first one I want you to see is that the God that Jonah proclaimed that Nineveh accepted was available. Was available. That's our first point. Jonah's message to the Ninevites was God was from God, but his attitude was not. His attitude was one of anger, of malice, and the Lord did not want to hear his prophet gripe and whine like a toddler who didn't get his way at home and wants nothing but that truck down on the table. Jonah did not share God's love for the Ninevites. Remember, he hated them. Man, he hated them. If I can use the word, Jonah was a racist in that way because he was, he hated these people because they had killed his people. But yet God told him that he was going to stay the judgment. But Jonah wanted fire to rain down from heaven like Sodom and Gomorrah to blow up the place. So when Jonah saw that wasn't it, if you notice in verse 2, you're, you're, it literally will read this. It was evil to Jonah with great evil. Jonah was so upset. He called God's actions evil because he did not like what God was doing to Nineveh. And he preferred to die rather than live. He preferred to die rather than live to then see people come to know the God of his nation. And friends, Nineveh's repentance led to a response of grace and mercy. All of this brought great displeasure to Jonah. Isn't that ironic? I mean, think about this. This guy was swallowed up by a fish however many days ago, or months even, but what pleased God displeased Jonah. He went from the preaching prophet to the, ah, the pouting prophet. Go cry me a river. It's basically God's response to him. God sparing Nineveh was a disaster in his eyes. But why was it that he was so displeased? I think there's several possibilities here. First, remember, as I just mentioned, Jonah was a Jew these were Ninevites. If I could use the terminology, the, uh, the Ninevites, the Assyrian nation, were kind of like the, the, the Nazis of this time. Nothing was too bad for them to do. He hated them for that. He harbored, harbored bigotry in his heart because of that. And second, there may have been a moral motivation. Jonah knew this was a wicked nation. He knew that even if they stopped the judgment now, what would stop them from coming back into Israel and doing it all over again? And from a human level, we can't fault Jonah, can we? Really, I mean, think about that. We would have those same types of thoughts. But evidently, he explained to the Lord why he was go not going to be obedient from the very first. Look back at verse 2. He says, Oh, Lord, is that not what I said when I was still at home in my country? And we've seen this odyssey. In chapter 1, Jonah was disobedient. In chapter 2, he was thankful. In chapter 3, he was obedient. And in chapter 4, he's angry. So if we had a chapter 5, which we don't, I don't know what Jonah would have done. But, friends, I think the takeaway is this. Most people 
want Jesus as a consultant rather than as a king. Most people want Jesus or God rather as a consultant rather than as a king. And Jonah continues his angry prayer with what has become a creed or confession among the Hebrew people. And he goes in and he's correct in his theology, but his heart is far from it. So God is available. He saved the Ninevites, but he goes on and he says this. First, he gives us five affirmations here of what God's character is like. Look what he says. I know you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from doing harm. This is a basic statement repeated at least ten more times in the Old Testament. It's just a phrase he knew. At Tower View, we say know, grow, share, and serve. Many of you have that down. I, you can just quote it. Jonah quoted theology that was correct, but his heart knew God was available, but he didn't want them available. He didn't want God to be available to the Ninevites. But here's what he says. He goes on. He says, secondly, God is gracious. God is gracious. He knows that God is kind in his attitudes and actions to those who are undeserving, and he does for sinners that which they do not deserve. Yet, friends, his heart was not in it. He knows God's available. He knows God's gracious. I'm going to run through these quick, so follow along. If you're taking notes, feel free to write them down, but just follow along if you will. God is merciful, secondly. God, you are gracious and you are a merciful God. Jonah knows God's compassionate. Jonah knows God is loving. Jonah knows he's merciful. Like a mother loving her children, so is God to those who's made in his image. And he also knows this. He also knows God is a God of long-suffering. God is a God of long-suffering. He's slow to anger. God does not have, like some of those fireworks that have quick fuses that if you just barely light it, you can't get it out of your hand. He is patient. God is long-suffering. It is not God's inclination or desire to bring judgment upon those whom he has created. Friends, that's a good thing, isn't it? Aren't you grateful that God has stayed his hand of judgment until such a time that you and I might come to Christ? And God's first response is to be slow in getting angry, even in the face of sin and rebellion. You say, well, Darren, how does this affect, does, do lost people matter to me? Well, I put up another statement here, and it's simply this. If you are reaching out to people, you need to grab them with your passion for Christ, win them with your love, hold them with your holiness, challenge them with their truth with the truth and amaze them with your god do you notice all of these in this little list that you'll see on the screen are pretty much missing in jonah's life where's his passion for lost people it's not there win them with love jonah went with a message of judgment we his words were what god told him he did that right but was his heart in it hold them with holiness jonah's on a hill we'll read in a few minutes that he's waiting for the fireworks show to come down on Nineveh. He's got the best seat in the house, and he's ready for it to happen. He challenged them with the truth, and he amazed them with his God. But friends, he was so far. His heart was so far removed from everything. He had forgotten who God was. Not only is God gracious, he's merciful, he's long-suffering, but notice also he's loving. That word here, many of you have maybe have kids or know people. Does anyone know any little kid or even an adult, I guess, named Hesed? Has anyone ever known someone named Hesed? Really? That's actually very interesting. No one in the congregation. 
This word here for loving is the Hebrew word for hesed. It literally is the agape. Many of you know that word in the New Testament, agape love. The city of brotherly love is what? It's Philadelphia. We get that word from uh, part of that word from there. This word for loving in verse 2 is, is a word that's a particular love of God. It means his loving kindness, his steadfast love, his grace, his mercy. It's used over 240 times in the Old Testament. It's a love that only God in his character can give for a certain people. And Jonah affirms that. But Jonah's heart is probably saying, God, I know you're a hesed God. You're a God of all love. But I don't want you to love them. I want you to love our people, to do it our way. And that's where he goes on. God's love is Hesed. He knows that. God, he gets what that love is. But notice also, he says, you're a God that forgives. God is forgiving. God is the one who stopped the judgment from the disaster. And the word is the same word that had previously been translated evil or trouble in the book of Jonah. Friends, this God had saved them from so much. But Jonah says, I don't want it. Get it away from me. It is better for me to die than to see them live. And you say the Bible's not exciting. Woo! Man, this will be a Hollywood blockbuster if you keep this up. I'm serious. And the most amazing thing, the last thing in this list, is God is patient. Look at verse 3. Therefore, O Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's words are showing that the God's grace towards Nineveh is simply more than Jonah could bear. Jonah is at the point. He is so fed up with God and what he is doing. He says, take my life. You are this God, but it's just not worth me seeing this. Take me now. Elijah did this after the Mount Carmel episode. Maybe you know that. He, he built the altar in 1 Kings 18, and in 1 Kings 19, he wanted to kill himself because it was so tough on him. Moses had this happen, but Jonah was angry and depressed. And it stressed him out to the max that he said, Lord, the only solution for me is for you to take me right now. I mean, think about this. Jonah is in a time, you, just the broader history here, Israel, his home country, is under God's judgment. They will be destroyed soon. So God is judging in Jonah's mind the very people that are his, yet he's saving the people who are going to be destroying them eventually. God, how does that work? And friends, Jonah is living proof that you can dot every theological I and cross every theological T, but still not know the heart of God. You know, I got this story. Maybe you remember this picture from a couple years back in the London Olympics. I think it's up here. Uh, this picture here. You forgot our anniversary. No, it's okay, really. I don't mind. Uh, many of you husbands have had that look from your wives if you've forgotten this. But a story actually came out of this, this picture that was taken by this gymnast. Uh, it was in the London Olympics. And while waiting in the line at the London Olympics, this man named Jason noticed a friend in front of him who was also at the London Olympics who was becoming increasingly nervous. And this man was fidgeting, shaking his head, and muttering to himself. Not a good picture. And in an attempt to calm his friend down, Jason jokingly said, you must be really desperate for cash in London, right? The, the way you're talking to yourself. And the friend looked at Jason, and he said, I'm in a real pinch. He said, we're halfway across the world. I came over here to get some money while my wife is laying in line to pay for a dress she bought from this, this store in London. But I can't remember my PIN number. And Jason, the good friend, suggested the obvious. Well, why don't you run over to your wife, I mean, come on, and get the number from her? 
Pretty simple. And the friend replied, I can't do that because our PIN number is the date of our anniversary. <laughs> How easy it is to forget, isn't it? Friend, let me ask you a question today. Whose heart do you have, Christian? Do you have the heart of God or do you have the heart of Jonah? Our God is a God of a missionary heart. Missions, evangelism, reaching out is rooted in God, that John 3.16, God's purpose and love in that. No one group has the monopoly on God's grace. That was true in Jonah day, Jonah's day, and it's true for us here today. But did you see in verse 4 how God responded to him? Look at this quickly before we move on. He said, do you, God said, do you do well, Jonah, to be angry? The form of the question is a rhetorical question. Parents, you've done this to your kids before. It's that question where you know the answer, and they can't answer back anything, but you're right, basically. And the question is God's marvelous example of his patience towards us. Jonah, is it right? Is it justifiable for you to be angry today? Friends, and it's not. Jonah doesn't even answer God. There's no answer we have in the text of who it is. You see... Jonah's anger was out of place. Jonah's anger was wrong. And God tries to get him to understand, Jonah, my heart is for these people just as it is with your people. Friends at Tower View, may we never be so inwardly focused that we forget that this church is not about activities, programs, and entertaining the sheep. This church is about reaching, as Jesus would say, the goats, those people who don't know Christ. If we are here in the entertainment business, boy, you picked the wrong guy. Because I'm not funny. I'm funny looking. I know that to be true. But I'm not a Tim Hawkins comedian. I'm not whatever. Friends, we are here to reach the nations. That is why we are here. May our church not forget who God is, because that's where it all starts to go downhill from there, as we will see. Let's move on to the second point. Don't forget who God is, but for, secondly, don't forget why you and I are here individually and collectively. In verse 5, there's a change of location. I've mentioned this several times, but look back at verse 5. Jonah now starts that trek outside the city. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of it, of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah made himself a shelter, uh, sat under the shade, and until it might happen. And, you know, the, the obvious question many of you would have, perhaps, is how long did this take? Jonah preached. Was this at the end of the 40 days from chapter 3? Folks, we really don't know. What we really do know, though, is it's clear that Jonah hoped that God might still come around to his way of thinking. He's going to give God a little bit more time to get his act together. He's going to give God a little bit more chance to get this right. And isn't it often the case with us as well? That in our particular situations of life, we too question God and draw the conclusion that God has got it wrong. That our way is really best and his way really, well, it's not perfect. He, he just needs some modification. God needs my advice. God, however, has at least a few lessons for Jonah. So we'll start with those in this. First out of verse 5, the first subpoint here is you are not here to criticize or to condemn. Hmm. Jonah left the city, and he positioned himself high up on a hill. If you've been here on July 4th, you know we have a lot of people who come to Tower View to watch the World of Fun fireworks. Think of that. Think of Nineveh. That, please don't say this to anyone in the World of Fun. But in the estimation of distance, think of Nineveh as close as World of Fun is to Tower View. That's, 
in a sense, how close it could have been. How long Jonah was willing to wait and watch, again, is not certain. We don't know how long it was. But we do know Jonah was not happy, but he had not yet given up hope that God would change his mind. Nineveh might turn to its violence. Maybe Nineveh would have this, this kind of backswing, and they would do something dumb. And then Jonah's like, yes, God saw that. The judgment's coming. I mean, you don't know what's going through his mind. In stubborn silence, he walks out there. He makes himself like a shelter, and he just sets under it. God might come around, he says, and do the best thing. God, just get rid of them now. We'll be okay. They'll be, well, they won't be okay, but just get rid of them now. And Jonah goes out to the east of the city. This was the outside gate of the city. He built himself a hut, and this hut was probably to keep himself out of the sun. This is in the middle of the desert, folks, modern-day Iraq. Uh, we have a gentleman in our congregation who I can't say the name of uh, over the airways. We have a gentleman, many of you know, who's in uh, that area now. And I tell you, it's 110 there every day. I get an email from him, and it's hot. But the Lord's question goes back to verse 4. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Friends, I think this is a great lesson for us. Condemnation of sinners is God's business, not ours. Jonah chose rather to examine the city. And God had looked upon Nineveh turning from sin with delight. Jonah looked at it with disgust. Jonah wanted to question God. Why these horrible sinners? But Jonah forgot we are not here to condemn. Believer, if you're a Christian here today, would you learn to rejoice in the fact that God has brought you no condemnation? Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And demonstrating the joy, Christian, you have that God's wrath has been stayed on, stayed from you will make you so much better to share the gospel because there will be joy leaking from you because that is the gospel. Does that sound overdramatic? Friend, we have been saved from sin. We are like Nineveh eternally that we have been saved from sin. What joy that should bring to our hearts. But can I ask you a question, Christian, here this morning? Do you want to more dread your neighbor's eternal condemnation then you dread your own embarrassment in telling him or her about it. Sometimes the hardest thing, many of you know this, many of you have a passion to share the gospel and you say, I just can't do it. Friend, would you step out and pray? Would you step out and pray? Remember to praise God that he has freed you. How much more should we go out and free others? You say, Darren, I just can't get the words to say. Sometimes it has given him a gospel track. Sometimes it is saying, I will pray for you. Would you come to our church? Sometimes it, it, go to our website, towerofukc.com. There's a web page there. You never know what God can use to share the gospel. We have, uh, I, I don't think he's here today. We had a gentleman in the last month who's come that Tower of You knocked on their door. Uh, I'm looking at Deb here, 2007, 2008. It's been a long time ago. He said, you know, I never forgot that. It's taken me seven or eight years to get here, but I'm here. And you never know what God will use. But if you are a Christ, not a Christian here today, maybe you need to hear that knocking on your door, the pounding on your heart to know where you are with Christ. Friends, what will you do when you're caught in your sin if you're not a Christian? This is the future, according to the Bible, that you will stand in judgment someday like Nineveh stand before God. And though he was without sin, Christ was caught for us. He was, he was poured, uh, God poured out his wrath on Christ. And, and that is the way that we are saved. We are saved not by works, not by 
joining a church, not by being forgiven by a priest or a leader, not by we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, by his grace alone, for his glory alone, by repenting and believing the gospel. And if you are here today and you have questions about that, see me after service, see John and Kim in the back, pick someone out, talk to us. It is the most important thing you can have. But friends, we are not here to criticize or condemn. We're also not here, secondly, to be comfy or cozy. Oh boy, lazy boy's going out of business. Watch out. Verse 6, look at verse 6 with me. It begins with another providential act of God. So he's built the shelter. Now it said the Lord God appointed a plant uh, and it might be shade over his head so to save him from his discomfort. So God is in the act of making a plant come his way. Remember, this is the only time that we see this phrase, Lord God, or one of many times, rather, in the book of Jonah. The Lord God has done many things for Jonah in this book. But do you see the irony here? Do you see the irony of the situation? Jonah is flaming mad that God is going to save these people. And yet God still gives him shade over himself so he won't be hot and sweltery. Jonah's pitiful shelter, which he made himself, was unable to relieve his discomfort. God steps in, and he makes this plant whatever it was. I can go in. I looked at what kind of plant is this? It's the middle of a desert. We don't know, but there's several things it could have been. But the purpose of the plant was to ease Jonah's comfort. The vine accomplished its perfect, perfect, ah, purpose. Literally, the text reads in the translation, Jonah rejoiced over the vine with great rejoicing. So Jonah was happy beyond happy that God was going to maybe get right and get his way of thinking right. Now he's overly joyous that God is making a plant to make him feel better. Isn't that ironic? What a weird thing. He was not just happy. He was incredibly happy. Like happy like the Royals won the World Series. He's that uncomfortable. You know what I'm saying? Do you get the picture here? For the first and only time in the book that we know of, Jonah is happy because a plant came over him. But that thing's still there. He's still not happy that God won't destroy Nineveh. The purpose of the plant was not just to shade Jonah. It was to teach him a lesson. Jonah's comfort would be short-lived. As the morning dawned into the next day, we read in the text, God prepared a worm and damaged the plant so it withered away. The vine, the plant, whatever it was, was here today and gone the next. God sovereignly sent a worm to destroy the plant that had brought Jonah such great joy and happiness. And combined with the effect of the intense heat and scorching sun, the plant would wither even without the divine intervention of God. But friends, this has been the, the, the ironic thing throughout the book. God has sent storms. God has sent waves. God has sent fish. God has sent plants. It is God, the author, the sovereign author behind everything in Jonah's life. God prepared all those things. And most Bible scholars think this wind, I think I'm saying this correct, this wind that came up is a Sirocco. I think I'm saying that correctly. It is one of those east winds in the desert that brings the dust storms. It's a bad wind. And Jonah has lost a plant. Jonah has lost his shelter. Jonah has lost his comfort. Jonah has lost everything, and now he's down faint. He's literally getting ready to die, and he says, take my life. It's better that I die. Wow. It's amazing how fickle we are sometimes with our comfort, isn't it? Jonah's no longer a happy prophet. Woohoo! God got the plan. Oh, no, God took it away. 
is more than he could endure, and he became faint. Friends, he's done. Life was no longer worth living. God, you took the city I wanted you to destroy. God, you took the plant I wanted you to have. You took my shelter. You took, God, I'm done. Take my life. Making an exit from this miserable place is far better than seeing everything continue as it is in your time. Jonah, though, learned a lesson, folks. We need to relearn and relearn. We are not here to be comfortable as a Christian in this life. Do not let the American dream mix in a bottle of your Christianity and somehow you mix it up and you have this perfect American Christianity. Friends, that is straight out of the pits of hell. You are not here to be comfortable. Is it okay to have comforts in this life? Yes, please hear me clearly. But as the course of life goes, that is not where we're here. Takeaway is this. Amy, if you want to throw this one up, your church might not be a biblical church if you always feel comfortable there. What do I mean by that? Does that mean we should go out and get wooden pews again where it hurts your bottom after sitting there? For That is not what we're saying. But friends, I pray, and it, trust me, this has cut me up this week, this text of, is my heart for the lost. I pray that we're not just here to preach judgment, but I pray that as we do, just go through the Bible that you are seeing some things in your life, and I'm seeing things in my life, in our church, that we could do better for the Lord. That's what we're here to do. C.S. Lewis, Becky, you had a C.S. Lewis quote on your Facebook yesterday. If you want, he said this. C.S. Lewis is a great author. He said, if you want a religion that makes you feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. The cross is not a comfortable thing in your pocket. Christianity is not meant to be convenient. God didn't promise it. God didn't promote it. The Christian life, friends, let me sum it up. It is a life of denial. Take up your cross and follow me. It is a life of service. Consider others better than yourself. It is a life of following Jesus as we deny ourselves. Christian, have you counted the cost of denying the American dream for the cost of following Jesus Christ? Hit the next slide for me. A few years ago, I I won't say his name, but there is a book that came out called Your Best Life Now. Friends, this is a picture of the Roman Colosseum in the first century. This was their best life then. Look, I'm not saying the lions are going to come eat you at your house. That's not what I'm implying. But I am saying, do not think that just because a book is on the New York Times bestseller list that it is a biblical book. Friends, the biblical book we have is called the Bible. And the Bible tells us that the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup, then you seriously need to reevaluate your life. And that's the truth. Much false teaching begins with the assumption that God means to give us our best life now instead of our best life later. Anyone who believes that this is our best life now must have a very dim view, sort of like Jonah did, about why you're here. Friend, don't forget who God is. Don't forget why you're here. And lastly this, don't forget what really matters. Don't forget what really matters. Look back at verses 9 and 10 if you'll read that with me. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, same question, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came out in the being of the night and perished in the night. Friends, for the second time, God asked him that question. Are you okay with this? Do you do well with this? Jonah responds, is it right for me to be angry even to death? And he thinks it is, but God doesn't. Friends, don't forget what really matters. First off is this. You need to have God's perspective. The stuff of this life matters very little. 
The stuff of this life matters very little. Jonah's value system had been turned upside down, topsy-turvy, if you will, in trying to help him get his head back on straight, as we might say. The question in verse 9, again, is the same question we saw in verse 4, with the exception of the last three words concerning the plan. God didn't just ask him generally now, he asked him specifically. And God calls attention to the issue in such a way as to make Jonah condemn himself right before him. This is exactly what the prophet did. In essence, he's saying, I am so mad I could die. God, I am so mad that my, my emotions are raw. I just can't take this. Spiritually, he's in the pits. He's in the deepest. He, he's almost in the belly of the fish, so to speak, again. The plan had been important to Jonah. It was great significance. He loved it. It pleased him. He was furious that it was dead. He was not looking at life with the eyes of the Lord. And clearly, clearly, his heart was far from it. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in the night. Friends, can I ask you a question? I'm, uh, and this, uh, I've really had to think about this question. Application point. If God answered all of your prayers today, would your neighbors know him, Christ, and the gospel? Or would you just have more stuff? God addressed the issue and the source of Jonah's comfort. It was the plant. The Lord pointed out he had been concerned about something over which he had no involvement at all. Jonah did not tend the plant like a gardener. Jonah had not lifted a finger to make it grow. Jonah had been just watching God do his thing, and there it was. His perspective was all messed up. Jonah thought the stuff of this life mattered. And God told him, Jonah, the stuff of this life matters very little. But the souls of this life, the city of Nineveh matters a lot. In a sense, God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, who are you to question me, the Lord? And it is clear that Jonah, that you neither understand me, nor do you trust me, neither do you have the right perspective. So what is the right perspective? We'll end with this last point. That souls of the lost matter tremendously. The stuff of this life matters little, but the souls of this life matter tremendously. Friends, the plant was not the issue. The issue for Jonah was Nineveh. You know, sometimes that's the way it is. When you talk to someone who's angry, you think it's a small thing, but as you get to talk to them, it's actually a deeper thing. And we know in Jonah's heart, it was Nineveh. Look at verse 11 with me as we close. And should not I, God says, pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah wanted the plant. Jonah wanted destruction. God wanted the people. Jonah had neither created nor nurtured it. But was it right that he would extend his hand of mercy to Jonah with a plant and not extend his hand, God's hand, of mercy to people who needed eternal salvation? Now, just a, a side note here. Uh, many of you said, uh, I had one person ask me this good question. Didn't you say, Pastor, a couple weeks ago the size of Nineveh was about the size of Kansas City? Yes. That 120,000 people you see, the best we know is the men, the, the usually over age 20 in that time, counted. This is not including all the men, or all the young men, the women, the children, uh, all the servants. Over in that time, there could have well been 600,000 people in that city. So imagine Kansas City, roughly 500,000 plus independence as a city of Nineveh. And the phrase, who do not know their right hand from their left, was the 
reference that God gave Jonah to tell them, look, Jonah, you know all this information. They have no idea who I am. They were so far removed from God that they had difficulty discerning good from evil. Friends, it is a, a, a sovereign act of the Lord. If you are a Christian, please know you did not become a Christian because you thought better than the next person. Please know that if you're a Christian here today, you are not a Christian because somehow you had uh, this super uh, like intellectual ability to examine the text and see. You are a Christian here today if you're a Christian because God opened your eyes to see the truth. No more, no less. These were people created in the image of God that Jonah was to preach to, and he did, but he did it with the wrong heart. You know, Matthew 24, 37 through 39 says this. For as the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as those days were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Jonah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So we will be until the coming of the Son of Man. Last application point is this. Friends, as a church, it is very important for us to stand on the gospel. But what does it profit for a people to win the culture war and lose their souls? Friends, if you're here today and politics are bigger than your faith, can I challenge you to flip that on its head? If Christ is not bigger than the politics in your life, and please, you pray for your president, you pray for your leaders, it's important to be part of that process. But if 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 I can just say, if CNN, if, if Fox News, if, if Rush Limbaugh, if throw out the, the political pundit who's out there is bigger than your God and your concern for lost people, can I tell you that you have your wrong priorities? Church, if we ever become so politicized that it is less about God and more about who's in the White House from this pulpit, please come and fire me on the spot. I hope you can say amen to that because, friends, we are to pray, 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 pray for our nation. Please don't misunderstand me. We are to be involved, 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 involved. But the biggest thing we have to remember is that souls matter to God. And Christianity is not one in the political process. It is one by the preaching, sharing, and living out of God's word before men. And that is what Jonah failed to do. Great story to end with. Amanda Berry Smith was a good person for us to look, pattern our lives off after. Amanda Berry Smith lived from 1837 to 1915. She was a black girl born into slavery, and she met her Savior and served him faithfully. She was saved on a plantation farm. And following the death of her husband and her youngest child to extreme tragedy, she became a missionary and ministered in the needy parts of the world of America, England, Ireland, Scotland, Africa, and India. She went all around the world as a missionary. And reflecting on the lost souls of men and women, she said this. She said, how few there are that are willing to make any sacrifice to secure the freedom of souls that Jesus so freely offers. Lord, this is on her tombstone, Lord, help me, and I will go for thee. Tell me what thou dost want me to do. You may be here today, and you say, Darren, I really don't know what God wants me to do then maybe it's what Methodist evangelist Sam Jones said. He said this. He said, if I had a thousand tongues, they would talk of Christ. A thousand hands, they would work for Christ. And a thousand feet, I'd put them all in the way to heaven. Friends, lost people matter to Jesus Christ. He died for everyone. Lost people should, must matter to us. Eternity is too long. Hell is too long. Heaven is too long. 
Let's not forget, friends, what matters at this church. Please hear me clearly. Not saying don't be involved in politics. I'm not saying don't be involved in your family. I'm not saying don't be involved in the normal. You got to work a job. I can't pay your salary. Trust me. I can't. I wish I was a billionaire to pay everyone, but we can't do that. Friends, you are called wherever you are to go and be the gospel. But in all of that, remember that lost souls matter. Would you pray this week that God would show you someone in your life, maybe that you rub shoulders with every day, that you need to share the gospel with? If you have trouble sharing the gospel, talk to myself. I am not an expert. Talk to Matt down here. He got a new haircut. You can easily identify our, our youth pastor now. Talk to someone. We want you to share the gospel faithfully. If God's calling you to, we want to equip you the best we can. Let's go before the Lord in prayer today. God, you are a great God. Father, we know that. Father, help us to remember who you are and not forget that. Help us to not forget what really matters. Father, help us to not forget what really matters in this life. Father, stuff will come and go. As 1 Timothy 6 says, someday it will be someone else's, but, and we take nothing with us on the other side of heaven. But, Lord, one thing we do know is that, Father, what we do take with us is the ultimate question that you asked Peter. Who do you say that I am? Father, if we're in Christ, we are not by our own work or merit, but we can come to you through faith in Christ. Pray for anyone in this room who needs to know that truth. Father, if there are those without Christ, Lord, we know will stand before you in judgment. But, Father, until that day, may we be bold as a church, bold as members of this congregation. Father, I'm preaching to the choir here, so to speak, because this has long been the heart of this church. Help fuel that flame even more. Father, help us to do that. We love you. We praise you. Lord, as we enter this time of the Lord's Supper, Father, may you be glorified. May our hearts be set right around the gospel and around your table, we pray. In Jesus' name, God's people said. Amen. At this point, we'll go ahead and have the uh, uh, ushers come up. And uh, we'll go ahead and uh, get the Lord's Supper served. Friends, this is a time. It's a uh, time that we...